Diana, and lovely to be with you again. I think you've probably caught the fact that my name's Mark. I was here a few weeks ago as well, preaching from Ecclesiastes, which was great. Um, and I've been invited back again, which is lovely. Uh, the only problem, though, with turning up uh, to do a kind of a guest speaking stint is that you've got a whole Bible to choose from. And when you've got a whole Bible to choose from, uh, it's really no, it's really hard to know where to start. So when I get the opportunity to do things like this, I just tend to go back to some of my own personal favourites. Uh, and today, again, is one of those. So I've chosen to preach from Daniel chapter 1, which is a little unexpected place to go in terms of a favourite. But it's a favourite of mine for a couple of different reasons. Um, the first of which is that I'm fascinated by Old Testament stories that we tend to pass off as just children's stories. Uh, you know, stories that appear in children's Bibles that we often reduce down to a simple moral principle, uh, as opposed to unpacking the historical and cultural context of these stories. And it's my contention that when we look at some of these kind of cute Sunday school stories uh, that often we ignore as grown-ups, uh, that actually when we look at the context of these stories, they've got something incredibly powerful to teach us. Uh, so that's the first reason why it's a favourite of mine. But secondly as well, I've always been drawn to this part of the Bible, what we call the exilic uh, period of Old Testament history. Now, that sounds really kind of nerdy, doesn't it, that I might be drawn to you know, the exilic period of the Old Testament? Yes, it does sound nerdy, but I don't want that to come across in a particularly nerdy way. Uh, it's, it's, it's not so much about kind of the, the, uh, the, the, the biblical kind of nerdiness of that. It's more about actually the, the way that the context of those, of those stories actually speak to our current cultural moment. Uh, because these are stories of God's people at a time when they are defeated, when they're captured, they're displaced, and, and subsequently they're trying to work out what it means to live faithfully in the context of a culture that is powerful and at times hostile towards them. And when we start to look at these stories through those kinds of eyes, they've got enormous symmetry to what we experience as, as people of faith in our own cultural moment. Does that make sense? This week, for example, and I'm not going to go into this by, uh, in any great depth, but this week we, we wake up uh, and find out that the, uh, a, a CEO of one of our AFL clubs, one of our football clubs, only lasts a day uh, because we find out that he's attached to a church, not a particularly controversial church, but because he is the board member of a church, it precludes him from that position at his footy club. And without going into all the details of that, it's just a reminder to us that more and more so people of faith are on the margins of our, of our culture rather than being at the centre. And the last thing I want to do this morning is jump up and teach you how to be involved in a culture war because that's not me and it's certainly not the message of Daniel chapter 1 either. But what we have to try and discover together is what does it mean to live faithfully as a minority in our culture? a faithful minority in what is a big, powerful, and often hostile prevailing culture. And I think Daniel chapter 1 provides some really great stuff when we think about what it means to live out our faith in our world today. So let's have a look. I want you to, if you've got a Bible or a phone or whatever it is, um, turn to Daniel chapter 1, and let's have a look at this story uh, together again. So Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put into the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any of the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Lucky fellas. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding to all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there it is, Daniel chapter 1. Our challenge this morning is how do we understand this curious little story about Daniel and his mates and a confrontation about food? Well, maybe it's simple. Maybe it's all about the diet. Uh, I've got a picture up here just to show. There was a couple of, there was actually a proliferation of diet books a few years ago, all based around Daniel chapter 1. The Daniel plan, the Daniel diet, the Daniel fast, lose weight God's way. I love the last one here, the Daniel fast made delicious. That's a bold claim, isn't it, when it's just vegetables and water. Uh, But there was this proliferation of books to make it seem as though Daniel chapter 1 is all just about the benefits of vegan living. If we just eat veggies and water like Daniel, we could all be fabulous. Now, I've got no doubt, look, I'm a former PE teacher, I'm all about healthy living and the benefits of good diet and exercise, but my... Firm belief is that Daniel chapter 1 is more than just about the diet. It's more than just about a confrontation over food. There's something much, much bigger going on here. So as we do eat a healthy diet, 
Let's think about what this teaches us about what it means to live faithfully in our culture. And the first thing that I think this, this story teaches us really profoundly is that as we seek to live as a faithful minority in our world, we can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. We can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. If you think back to the start of that story again, what we find is that it's an explanation of the playbook for the way the the Babylonians were going about conquering the world. They've surrounded Jerusalem. They have control of the Israelite king and they have handpicked the very best of the Israelite young men to take them back to Babylon. Once there, they're given new names, they're taught a new language and culture. Basically, the idea is to turn these young Jewish exiles into Babylonians. And what better way, think about it, what better way of subduing your enemy than to take the very finest people from that culture and to turn them into your own? It's a bit like what we do with Kiwis that get famous. We bring them over to Australia and we make them our own. That was the idea. The Babylonians were going to conquer Israel by taking the royal family, their finest people, their best looking people, their best learners, bring them Babylon and make them Babylonian. The problem is that that meant giving up everything that made them distinctive. It meant giving into a system of religion and a system of values that was diametrically opposed to their faith in God. And believe me, the temptation was there. This was an impressive culture. This was a grandiose culture. They had these amazing religious festivals. Their idols were paraded through the streets. This was an impressive place to be. Uh, And they were winning the war. The temptation was right in front of them all the time to give in to the Babylonian culture. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of of when uh, myself and Jane moved to Sydney. This is like 20 or so years ago now, uh, before we had kids. I went over there to go to Bible college. We were both born and bred in South Australia, and we'd moved over to Sydney, which was a much bigger city, uh, in many respects a much more kind of impressive-looking city. And there we were, in a sense, born and bred South Australians trying to hold on to our culture. And it was, it was tough at the beginning. There's no pasties in Sydney. Who has no pasties? No pasties in Sydney. Uh, their number one football code is rugby league. These were difficult things to try to uh, cope with. But it's an impressive place. There's lots to like about it. Lots of things going on. Many people in Sydney are very Sydney-centric. They don't believe that anything important happens outside of Sydney and that basically Sydney is the centre of the universe. And it's quite easy to get swallowed up in a place like that, to start acting and thinking and even talking like a Sydney sider, to start saying uh, answer instead of answer and to talk about plants instead of plants, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but we had to fight desperately not to lose our South Australian heritage and get sucked into a bigger, more impressive-looking culture. That's what it was like for these Israelites in Babylon. They had to work hard not to lose their distinctiveness. As I said, these idols were paraded through the streets. The pressure to get swallowed up in that prevailing culture was right in your face. And in many respects for us today living in our culture, the pressure for us is much more subtle. No one's forcing us, like in the days of Babylon, to bow down to the idols in the street. But the danger of us being swallowed up by our prevailing culture is just as real. 
I came across just a really interesting uh, example of this last year. In the aftermath of uh, Pastor Carl Lenz and, and some moral failures, um, his controversial exit from uh, Hillsong, New York, I came across a fascinating article which was titled The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors by Ben Sixsmith. Now, Ben's not a Christian by any stretch, uh, and he was critiquing uh, not just Carl, but he was critiquing the church. Uh, And he had kind of simultaneously critiqued both the conservative arm of the church and the more progressive arm of the church at the same time. So he had a crack at both. Uh, But he had a crack at both within the context of what he called kind of this, this trend of a twist of Christianity. And I just want to read part of what he wrote because I find it really confronting in terms of the danger for us as people of faith to be swallowed up in our culture. He says, it seems to represent what I call the, with a twist of Christianity trend. There's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, uh, modish political activism and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. So, if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Ouch. It's pretty confronting stuff, isn't it? As we attempt to live as a faithful minority in our cultural moment, we can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. Otherwise, we'd risk losing our witness in the world. Now, what does that mean? I don't have all the answers up here this morning. But it certainly doesn't mean that we just cut ourselves off from the outside world. An attitude of escape from culture is just as destructive as an attitude of uncritical embrace. But we have to hold the tension. And it's not just about the stuff that we don't do, although sometimes it is, but it's equally the things that we commit ourselves to. If we don't have a different ethic when it comes to sex or money or power, if we're not distinctive in our self-giving love and our kindness and our treatment of those who are marginalised in our community, we just end up blending with everyone else, don't we? It's just normal life, but with a twist of Christianity. But our lives, according to the Bible, according to Titus chapter 2, are to be an ornament to the gospel. An ornament to the gospel. Our lives are designed to make the message of Jesus more attractive. And while it would be easy, a la the verse we talked about here, to take the wide road, to throw our hands up in the air and, and get swallowed up in just our prevailing culture, the radical individualism, um, to just live for ourselves, our calling, whether we like it or not, is to be set apart. And we do that by being more loving, more forgiving more compassionate, more self-sacrificial than our prevailing culture tells us that we should be. If we are going to live out our calling as a faithful minority in our culture, we can't afford to lose that which makes us distinctive. We need to live that out. 
So that's the first thing that I think this really profound story uh, teaches us in our current cultural climate. The second, I think, is really, really important for every single one of us trying to live out our faith in our world today. And that is this reminder to both the people of Israel and to us this morning that despite the way it looks, God is still in control. And that sounds simple, but this is something that I think each of us need to be reminded of. Despite the way it looks, God is still in control. So in the second half of the story that we read out this morning, here we have these guys determined not to completely cave into Babylonian culture. Daniel decides to make a stand over food. Now, why food and not anything else is a good question. They took on the names. They did the study. They did all of those things. They, they lived in, in the royal court, but they, they decided that food was going to be the issue. Perhaps it was the fact that that food was offered to Babylonian idols and to eat of it would have been an indirect act of worship of those gods. But for whatever reason, Daniel devises a simple little test. For 10 days, you let the other guys feast away on all the royal food and wine they can get their hands on, but give us nothing but rations of veggies and water, and we'll see who comes out looking better at the end of those 10 days. And lo and behold, at the end of the test, 10 days later, Daniel and his three friends look healthier and better nourished than anyone. But that was just the surface level. There was actually something greater at stake here. This wasn't just a test for Daniel. This was a test of the gods. Who was really in control of this situation? It reminds me a bit of that time as a parent. And I say this with hesitation because I am at that time as a parent now. I've got three kids, uh, 20, 18 and 16. And there's a time as a parent when your kids get to a point where they are bigger, faster, stronger and better than you are at certain things, not everything. Uh, but if I was to go into a running race with my two of my boys at the moment, I would definitely come third. Let's put it that way. Uh, there's a time when they're bigger, stronger and faster than you are. And I remember one of those moments when I was younger, and I'm glad I've got dad here, uh, just to reminisce on one of these moments when I was a little bit younger as well. And there was a, uh, there was a kind of a, a changing of the guard, if you like. Now, we used to live at a place uh, down at Unley Park. And uh, this was when I was kind of, I was already an adult, I was probably 20 at this stage, but yet to kind of be married and move out. And dad decided to buy uh, us uh, like one of those table soccer tables uh, to sit in the front room, which is a fantastic purchase because we must have played that game hundreds of times uh, when that table was first bought. And the best thing of all was that I won probably 99.9% of the time. He'd snag one every now and again, but one out of 100, I would say. But the reality was this wasn't just, you know, simple games of table soccer. There was something else going on. It was about a changing of the guard, a changing of the status between father and son. Because I remember, like everyone else, when I was just a little tacker, you know, dad would take me out to play tennis every now and again. And, you know, he would let me win a point every now and again just to keep me interested. But he was certainly the one who was in control of that situation. But now the tables had turned, and wasn't it good? Around the table soccer table, I was the one that was in control. I was the one who would decide when to have pity, and believe me, it wasn't that often. (laughs) 
This wasn't just about table soccer. This was a whole paradigm shift. And that's what it was like in Babylon. At the surface level, this was a test over food and wine. But the overarching reality was that this was a test of whose God was more powerful. And so the result not only vindicates the remarkable faith of Daniel and his friends, but it shows in front of everyone that it was God, the God of Israel, and not the king or his gods who was in control. So despite the way it looked, and believe me, it looked bad. They were losing the war. Jerusalem was in ruins. Their best people were taken into exile. It looked bad. Despite the way it looked, it was God who was orchestrating all of these events. He wasn't defeated. He wasn't overpowered by greater gods. He was in control of the whole thing. And you can imagine how important it was for the people of Israel to understand this. Like I said before, they were, they were at risk of throwing away their faith in a sense, thinking that God had been overpowered, thinking that the Babylonian gods had wrestled control, thinking that they were stuck in exile with no one to save them, no one to care about them. There was nothing to encourage them that God was there, that he was able to save them or that he even cared about them. They were drowning. They faced enormous temptation to swap their allegiance to the Babylonian gods. And so the stories of the faith of, his, of Daniel and his friends and the unmistakable actions of God in providing for them were incredibly important. It saved the faith, the ongoing faith of Israel. And they're just as important for us in our cultural moment. Because it's equally easy for us to look around and wonder whether God has left us to our own devices. Flicking on the news at night, picking up the paper, dealing with our own personal tragedies. It's easy to look around and wonder whether God has left the building. There's a powerful scene in the movie Blood Diamond. Uh, it's from a few years ago now, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, he's involved in a you know, violent diamond trade, uh, but he's travelled right through Africa and seen some of the devastation that has occurred uh, over a whole bunch of different issues over the years. Uh, and as he sits and laments on the things that he has seen over many years, uh, he has a vulnerable moment where he, sh- where he says, sometimes I wonder, will God ever forgive us for what we've done to each other? And then I look around and I realise God left this place a long time ago. He couldn't reconcile what he had seen and done with the idea that God was still in control. And it's sometimes easy for us, I think, in our cultural moment to look around, whether it's the things that we see on the news, whether it's the things that we experience in our own life, whether it's just the way that we see our culture shifting and moving for us to think along similar lines, maybe not so dramatically, but we wonder where is God in all of this? How could God still be in control? The dominant systems of our world seem to have control. Bad news just seems to invade every moment of every day. Life can feel unpredictable and out of control. The Christian faith seems to be pushed more and more to the margins of our society. Uh, It can feel like the battle's been lost. Well, fortunately, 
the good news is that God's sovereignty, his power and his control is not dependent on how we feel. Just because we get disillusioned, and even when we can't really see it, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. That's what he was proving to the Israelites, and that's what he wants to assure us as well. And look, in the end, the reality is, the Bible tells us, that everything else comes to nothing. There's this beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 40 where the prophet uses these images, these beautiful images of a drop from a bucket and dust on a scales. That's what everything else is like in comparison to God. These really impressive Babylonian idols that used to get paraded through the streets, history tells us, what did they become? Nothing. And just like that, the dominant values that seem to control our culture today, they will eventually come to nothing as well. Compared to the sovereignty and control of God that he has over the world and over our lives, they are nothing more than a drop from a bucket or dust on a scale. Our circumstances in life might change. The way we feel about God might fluctuate. But God's sovereignty never does. He's always in control. And the question for us as we seek to live as a faithful minority in our culture is the same question that Daniel and his mates faced back there in Babylon. And that is, in what will we place our trust? That's the question before us every single day. In what will we place our trust? Do we go out from here and and get swallowed up by the value systems of our world because that's what seems to work for most people? Or do we go out with a firm resolve that we are going to engage our world distinctively living like Jesus? With an understanding that even in our darkest moments, the God of the universe is still working out his purposes. He is still in control. My prayer is that each of us may have the courage of Daniel. Uh, And let me just pray for us as we do that this morning. Gracious God, we thank you so much for who you are. Uh, We thank you for your incredible love and grace. And we reflect this morning on your sovereignty. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that even despite the way it looks and feels at times for us, that we can place our trust in you. We thank you for these reassurances that we find right through your story that remind us uh, that you do care and that you're powerful enough, despite everything else that goes on, to move things towards your purposes. And I just pray for us as we, as we seek to live this out in our world, as we face daily the, the pressures of just being like everyone else, of kind of throwing our hands up and just going, well, it's all too hard. May you give us the resolve and the faith and the trust that we need to keep following you, to keep living like Jesus, so that others may be drawn uh, to the good news of you, that others may be drawn to your kingdom. May you help us to know what it means to live that out, to give others around us a little glimpse of your kingdom in the world today, on earth as it is in heaven. Um, So I thank you for these stories. I thank you for what they teach us. I thank you that they are a reminder of who you are and who you're calling us to be. And we commit all of these things to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.